Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again. All right, I'm teaching out of Mark chapter 2. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2, like I told you guys last week, I'm going to teach a passage from each chapter uh, and just ask that you sometime between now and next Wednesday read chapter 3 so you're familiar with that text when I get there. Um, today I'm going to teach a, a sermon, a teaching titled Jesus Calling. How many of you guys have seen the Jesus Calling devotional? Like, it got super popular there about four or five years ago. I'm not teaching that. Um, but Jesus does call us, and I want to talk about that what he calls us to, what he calls us to be, and how he's empowered us to be all of those things. Last week, we started in chapter 1 with 1, 35 through 42 to talk about Jesus's earthly ministry, what Jesus's earthly ministry looked like, that it was marked by prayer, that it was marked by preaching, that it was marked by power. And so uh, I want to continue in our teaching in chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and I'm going to go through 17, but I'll get to that in a second. Jesus calls us to himself, as he does Matthew in chapter 2, by saying simply, follow me. The most significant difference between follow me and follow rules is our focus. How many of you guys love a good to-do list? I do. I tell you, my life would be much easier. It, my wife makes my to-do list, most of them, keeps my calendar and all that. And if, the, if I could give you 10 things that you have to do every day to be everything in your Christian walk, God would have you be, how many of you guys would pay a subscription to get that, that list of 10 every month? I would, because then I would just, I'd know that I know that I know that I've achieved all 10 of these things. I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and because I did that, I know that I'm solid. We want a checklist, a policy and procedure manual. We want to know that what we're doing is what we're supposed to be doing. When I, when I started working for the state, they gave me a policy and procedure manual, a, a to-do list, a checklist of all the things I'm supposed to be that was easily this thick. Sadly, it never stayed the same. So even if I memorized it, they were always adding or taking away something and updating it for usually some offense or something somebody did. Oh, oh we need to fix that. And I was a lot of times the reason that would happen. So um, sadly, that's true. But I enjoyed that policy and procedure manual because it made me comfortable. Because I knew that I knew that if I did page one through page 250 or whatever it was, then I was secure in my job, that I didn't have to worry about it. But Jesus didn't call us to a policy and procedure manual. He didn't call us to a list of do's and don'ts. He called us to himself. He said, come to me. Follow me. But we, in our flesh, we don't like that. We like the rules. The problem with the rules is, Rules are external. They ask the question, am I doing the right thing? Jesus, in his calling, is internal. 
and requires us ask the, a different question, a question that says, am I becoming the right thing? Because you're not the right thing. You're not perfect. I don't know that you're going to be perfect according to the Word of God, as we've stated before, until you come into the presence of the perfect. And so there is a place of perfection, but I think it's after Jesus comes back for us and, and we get our glorified body and become perfect. Until then, all we can hope to be is what we are becoming. And so the question is, what are we called to become? And the answer to that is Jesus. We're called to look like Jesus. We're called to become like Jesus, mirror him, and walk according to the word as Jesus walked. Because to call yourself a Christian means you must walk as Christ walked. And so the question is, are we doing that? Are we, have we accepted the challenge? Do we understand that in that challenge to follow, we have to chisel away a piece of ourselves a little at a time? That we have to constantly pursue perfection. Do we realize, and I think this is as significant a question as the first, that that calling is for everybody? That follow me calling makes me inclusive, which means it doesn't matter what your skin color is, whether you're white black, Hispanic, whatever your skin color is. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic class, which side of the tracks you live on, whether you're educated or whether you're uneducated. The call to follow, the call to mirror, and the call to become like Christ is the same for all of us. And so the Christian walk should be, this is going to sound crazy, Beautifully, inclusively exclusive. So, God, the gospel, is exclusive. It is intended to exclude some folks. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ died for you, if you don't make a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and refuse to, you're excluded from the blessing. But it becomes beautifully inclusive when we do agree with that. The door to our circle opens and other people are invited in. As we mirror and become and walk as Christ walked. This is our obligation to follow. But also to recognize in our following that God wants other people to follow too. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Jesus in his calling of Levi, or Matthew, we see our responsibility to be a follower. And then again, our responsibility to cause other people to follow. <clears throat> and so I'm going to say this. Let's read this. <coughs> 13. Verse 13, I'll start with that. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. That is Jesus, of course. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. It's Jesus calling him, just follow me. And then Matthew did this incredible thing. It says, he got up and followed him. And it happened that while he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. 
When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? This question should make us angry. In hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come. Everybody say, I did not. Did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Listen to this. For he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he works, since he always lives to make intercession for them. <coughs> God calls us to love people. He calls us to be saved through Christ Jesus and has caused all of us to be capable of doing so. First thing I want to tell you <coughs> is that Jesus calls to you. Following me is for everyone. Following me is for everyone. I want to tell you a little story about why this is important. Take into consideration for a moment who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to Matthew. He's talking to Levi, a tax collector. Tax, Levi would have been hated by everyone. He would have been a representative of the Roman government, hated by the Jews, and because he was hated by the Jews, considered unclean because he hung out with that which was unclean. Now, you're not going to find this in Scripture, but you will find it in the additional Pharisaical laws, but this is what an extra-biblical Jewish law states. Keep your, which, according to Jewish tradition, even the laws that the Pharisees added still bore the weight of Scripture. Didn't make any sense to me. Made sense to them, but this is what it said. Keep yourself separate from the nations. Do not eat with them, do not imitate their rites, nor associate yourself with them, for their actions are something that is impure, and all their ways are defiled, abominable, and detestable. So the Jewish standard was to avoid anything that was considered unclean, anything of the other nations. Well, Matthew didn't do that. Matthew actually tied himself to the Roman government, and because he tied himself to the Roman government, was hated by everyone and was considered unclean by everyone. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that he didn't have access to anything other than his very small circle. He wouldn't have been allowed in the temple to worship. He wouldn't have been allowed around other Jews, and other Jews would have rejected him and driven him out of their company. It's very likely that Matthew wasn't even allowed to associate with his own family if his own family were fundamental Jewish. He isolated himself by choosing wrongly who he would associate with. Why do I tell you this? Because we can say the same thing. We are what Matthew was, the worst of the worst. He took advantage of his own people robbed them, stole from them. It was common practice for a tax collector to not just take the taxes that the Roman government required, but to line their own pocket with additional taxes, therefore stealing not just what they were supposed to take, but in addition to what they were supposed to take, 
everyone would have hated Matthew. Even the Romans didn't like him because at the end of the day, he was still Jewish. And so Jews, according to the Roman understanding, were just like dogs, absolutely worthless except to accomplish a particular purpose. Matthew would have been hated by everybody. Do you hear what I'm saying? Why do I tell you that? Because he wasn't hated by Jesus. Matthew had his own Zacchaeus moment. I want to read you a story out of Luke, not assuming that you know the story of Zacchaeus, or at least for the purpose of <clears throat> pointing out some things. <clears throat> Luke 19, 1 through 10, it reads like this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, watch the similarities between this passage and the passage I read you out of Mark. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Come down from there and follow me, is what he's telling him. And he hurried and came down and received, for, received him gladly, which means he did exactly what Matthew did. He climbed out of his tax booth and followed. Isn't it amazing that there was something about Jesus that no matter what you had to give up, no matter who you were, you were willing to set it aside when he looked you in the face and said, stop what you're doing and follow me. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you used to be. I don't care how you used to act. I care about who you are going to be and who you are right now when you declare the gospel. That's what Jesus cares about. But then he continues, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He's eaten with sinners and tax collectors. Isn't that what he's saying in Mark? He's eaten with sinners and tax collectors. Isn't it funny how the righteous always have something? The righteous, and I put righteous in quotation marks. The righteous always have something to say when the truly righteous reach out to the ones that God loves enough to care about them. So many times I just want to, how do I say this graciously? I just want to slap some Christians upside the head and say, what is your problem? Jesus died for you when you were the worst of the worst, when you didn't deserve his love, when you didn't deserve his mercy, when you didn't deserve his grace, when you didn't deserve his loving kindness, when you didn't deserve his patience, when you didn't deserve anything that he offered you, he gave it to us anyway. He looked into our tax booth, he looked into our tree and said, come down from there, come out of there and follow me. And for some reason, we did. Because the Spirit revealed him as the truth to us. But now, instead of being inclusively exclusive, we just want to be exclusive. We don't want to tell anybody else about it. I'm going on a tangent. It's not the point of my, what I'm saying here. But it, it continues, and Jesus said to him, today, so essentially Zacchaeus repents, stopped and said to the Lord, Lord, behold, behold, Lord, half of my possession I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus didn't just repent. He repent and then made it right. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation came to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come for the righteous, he came for the sick. Amen? It's time that the church recognized that he came for the sick. We are part of that sick. We were part of that sick. Sadly, we are still part of that sick. We still need Jesus. I don't know about y'all, but I ain't there yet. I still need Jesus every day to say, Jim, you need to come out of that text booth and follow me. Jim, you need to come out of that tree and follow me. And I say, Lord, I'm following you. You're not following me close enough. You're lacking. You're slacking. There's an issue here. Act like I act. And that's good. There's an old rabbinic saying I've told you guys several times before that says you should follow your rabbi so close that you're covered by the dust of his feet. That's how closely we should follow Jesus. And when he calls us, follow. Because he gave us the ability to do it. Why do I tell you so much about Levi, Matthew? Why do I tell you so much about Zacchaeus? Because I want to bring you hope to show you grace, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. All of us need to come to an understanding of these three truths. First, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, pausing on whosoever on purpose, it's time for you to cast down that I'm not good enough. I can't do it. You're not supposed to do it. That's why God gave you the Spirit of God. So that you could pursue Him, so that ultimately, through progressive sanctification, you will be at some point in your future in the presence of the perfect, so that you might be perfect. But whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He sent Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, four. That God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All men. <clears throat> and then number three, Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that beautiful? He sent Jesus so all men would know him and that we come to know him by calling on him. I had a, conversation with a young man this week and he's he's a young man probably in his 20s or so late 20s and he was weeping and he said pastor jim i can't i can't do it i'm trying i want to do it i've i've given my life to the lord and it seems like i've given my life to the lord again and again and again and again and every time I fall, and every time I'm ashamed, and then I'll miss church, or I won't talk to God, or I won't pray, because I think, man, how can I possibly face people that know I'm a Christian, or I call myself a Christian? How can I face a God who gave his son for me so that I could be perfect, knowing that I'm not perfect? And I tell him, all, God wants all men to come to him. He has empowered us to do it. And then I read him this passage out of Romans chapter 7. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is verse 17. 
for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. This is Paul speaking, just so you know. Let me put some reference to it. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, says, listen, I don't want to do the sin that I do, but my flesh calls out. I struggle. There's this tension between what I know I should be doing and what I'm actually doing. And he continues, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present. I want to do the right thing, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Man, this is a transparent pastor before his people. He's saying, I ain't getting it right either. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I've learned to understand that it's not my desire to sin, but I'm still fleshly. I still struggle. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. So I I really, man, I'm struggling at everything in me. I feel conviction whenever I step outside of the bounds of Scripture or step outside the will of God. I, I can feel that. As David said, I feel like my bones are breaking within me. I feel this is what Paul is saying. I feel such conviction. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war. I think that's huge. Against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the way of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. You guys ever felt that way? You've given your life to the Lord. You've made a confession of Jesus Christ. And you do something, you're all, man, I'm just wretched. And then you think the next day, I'm wretched. And then the next day, before you know it, it's three weeks before you've prayed because you're trying to hide from God a sin that he watched you commit in the first place. This whole time, God's sitting on the throne with his arms wide open and just asking, like I do for my grandson, just come and sit in my lap and tell me what you did. I'll make it better. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body from this body of death? Then he answers that question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. But, therefore, in one, verse one of eight, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The whole, the whole reason I want to talk to you about Matthew and Zacchaeus is because some of us, even after giving our life to the Lord, have convinced ourselves that we're not good enough for the gift that we didn't weren't good enough to receive in the first place. But God said, that's not true. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Whenever somebody gives their life to the Lord or commits their life to the Lord, and I have the privilege to pray over them, always ask that God strengthen them to walk righteously. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I also ask him, when they fail to walk righteously, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help them get back up and turn back to you. Because that's what God wants from you. Did, did any of you, 
raise any of your children expecting that they wouldn't at some point in their life disappoint you? Matter of fact, those of us that have raised kids went in knowing they would disappoint us. But we love them anyway. And we think somehow God's love is less than that for us. It's foolishness. I want you to take comfort in the fact that when I tell you as a matter of habit that God holds you in his righteous right hand, I'm not saying that as hyperbole, some exaggerated statement to feel, make you feel good about you. I'm telling you that because it's absolutely true that he loves you. doesn't matter how vile, how wicked, how crooked, how abased, how degenerate you were. The grace of God covers you. Amen? That's, there's no greater message than that. And he does it through his son, Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Can I ask you, if you were saved by grace, why do you think anything but grace would be able to keep you? I was saved by that which I didn't deserve. And because I have that which I didn't deserve, I get to walk in a relationship I don't deserve. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. i got to be honest with you. If I thought what I was doing was something that I accomplished on my own, man, I would be arrogant. More arroganter than y'all know me to already be. But praise God, he did it, so I can't boast. Mm, a gift of God. So I just tell you, stop living in self-condemnation. Jesus Christ didn't die for you to live in self-condemnation. Jesus Christ died to justify you and redeem you, which means to not only take your sin and call you not guilty, but to take your sin and remove it so far from you, it's as though you never committed that sin in the first place. You guys know one of the worst statements, one of the things I hate more than anything is to hear somebody say, man, your sin's covered in the blood. No, it's not. Because if it was covered, it could be uncovered. It was washed clean by the blood. Your sin is gone, chiseled off of you as though it had been on a stone and a chisel was taken to it. It no longer exists. Jesus justified you. And because he justified you, he was able to buy you back from the, from the enemy, from darkness, and put you in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that good? I could prove this to you in Scripture. Pastor Jim just not talking crazy. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians, did you catch that? Justified by faith. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for forgiveness of sins. We've been bought back from our sin, brought into the kingdom of light. Show of hands, how many of you guys think y'all deserve that? Nobody deserves that. It's a work of grace, which is by definition that we didn't deserve that. But God loves us enough to give it to us anyway. Stop living in self-condemnation. 
wake up in the morning. I'm not one of these. Well, <laughs> I'm really not. I, I'm not one of these guys that are just going to preach to you to make you feel good about you. But can I tell you, sometimes it would do us some good to stand in our mirror in the morning and say that by the stripes of Jesus Christ, I am made whole. We misunderstand health. It's not just health in our body. It's health in our mind. It's health in our spirit. We've been made whole. That word means whole. By Jesus Christ, I've been made whole. Not by anything that I did, but because God loves me. And because God loves me, I'm not going to use that love as a reason to sin today. I'm going to use that reason as that, that love as a reason to make my God proud of me. That's why Paul says, will you sin as a, a grace as an excuse to sin? Let it never be. Because our grace, we should use grace as a motivator to do right. We should see it, see how God is reflected and how much love he has for us and say, I don't want to disappoint him today. I want to show him that I, I, have, re I have received well the gift he has given me. You know, when we planted the church, I looked at my pastor and I said, I don't know what God has in store for Launch Point Church. I, I'll pray that it's big things. But I promise the confidence that you've shown, the support you've given, you'll never be disappointed in how hard I'm willing to work to do whatever God calls me to. And if I could say that to my pastor, surely I could say that to the God who used my pastor to save me. Amen? Stop carrying it around. I guess I could just say that. This could be a two-minute devotion. Stop carrying it around. Let it go. But we don't do that, do we? I hear people trust God with something, and they set it on the altar. And then they come back a minute, five minutes later, see if it's still there just in case they need to carry it a little longer. Just leave it there. Because you can. Hmm. But. There's this. If you are going to leave it there, if you are going to follow, it's going to cost you something. And I got to give you the cost. I got to tell you how much it's going to cost. What's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you everything. Luke chapter 14 reads like this. Verses 25 through 27, then I'm going to pick up again at 33 just, just to take out some of the illustration work that Jesus is doing. 14.25 says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. And that's a hard word. That's a hard word if you'll listen to it, if you'll pay attention to it. What's he saying? He's saying, in relation to how you love God, now, I do believe this is a, 
intentional statement of exaggeration on Jesus' part to show how intensely you must love God above everything else. He says, if you love me, your love has to be so strong, so profound, so magnificent, so committed that it appears as though you hate even your own family. That's how much your love for your family should be separated from the love that you have for me. That they should sit on two separate horizons. Not, he's not saying don't love your family. You got to not love your family to love Jesus. He's saying that there should be such a divide between these two loves because your love for him should be so great that it looks like this would be hate. He said, you, gotta, you have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And you have to hate yourself. You have to hate your own life, which means you must be willing to climb upon the cross that Christ has given you every single day. Notice that he doesn't say, this, he says, whoever does not carry my cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus Christ didn't call you to his cross. He's the only one that could bear his cross. He called you to your cross. What does your cross look like? Your cross looks like whatever it takes to crucify your flesh. To come to an understanding, cause you to come to an understanding that it ain't about us. I have to set aside my pride. I have to set aside my earthly riches. I have to set aside other relationships. I have to set aside time on my calendar to prioritize. I have to set aside sometimes even that which is good so that I can pursue that which is great. That's my cross. But that's all of your cross too. It just looks different than my cross because I've been called to something different than you've been called to. But you have to set it all down. Everything. Are you ready to let go of everything for the God that let go of everything for you? We shake our heads yes in church on Wednesday night and then Thursday through Wednesday afternoon, maybe not so much. It's easy to make a proclamation, a declaration in here. But when you're sitting in your workspace and you hear somebody blaspheme the name of Jesus in a joke, what do you do then? Do you stand up and lay upon your cross and say, not today? Let me tell you about the God I serve. Let me tell you about the Jesus that gave his life for me. You're all, well, I, I work in a uh, workspace that doesn't allow me to talk about my faith. Yeah, so does everybody. How big's your faith? You know, when I worked at the academy, state government, you couldn't talk about religion. But we had a Tuesday night Bible study that had about 60 students in it every Tuesday while I was there. You know why? Because my faith is bigger than their policy. And my boss was just weak enough to say, just do what you want, just don't tell me about it. But you'd be surprised the doors that would open for you in the spaces that you're in if you would trust God with the spaces that you're in. Y'all going to come back next week. I lost my job because you told me to have faith in Jesus. You know what I'm going to tell you? Have faith in Jesus. You'll get a new job. You didn't need that job anyway. All right. It's easy for you to say you're a pastor. <laughs> I wasn't a pastor in State Academy. All right. Anyway, we have to give up everything. 
our minds, our affections, our will, what we think, what we want, what we do, all of it. We have to be willing to give it up for Jesus because he gave up everything for us. But that's just the first couple of verses, 15 through 17. I told you in the first point was that Jesus calls you. But in the rest of the verses, 15 through 17, we see that Jesus calls those around you, through you. It's This text reads, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw what he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with these tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I could really beat this point up. But instead, I'm just going to tell you, God called you to use your influence to bring other people to him. He didn't save you to do nothing. If he saved you and that was as good as you were ever going to be on this planet, I believe he'd have brought you home the moment he saved you. But he called us to be influencers of the people around us. Now, what I want you to pay attention to, because this, this pop culture theology irritates me. Jesus sat with sinners. Jesus didn't become a sinner. You understand me? We're supposed to be separate from the world but we have to lovingly engage the world, which means sometimes we have to get our hands dirty. So how do we keep from the appearance of evil, as the Scripture tells us to do, if we are still sitting with sinners? Let me answer that very pointedly. Be the light. People get in trouble in sinners' places when they try to be spies instead of conquerors. When you're lurking around in the dark doing dark stuff under the guise of trying to be light, you're always going to be dark. Proclaim, this is why I'm here. You need to know this is why I'm here. We don't support a missionary that we used to support for this reason. We sent them. They were in the Middle East. We supported them monthly. I asked them for a report, and they said, and this, this, his wife sent me back an email about how they were building this relationship with his family next door, and she would spend an hour talking about her Bible, and she would allow, for the, for the sake of opportunity to talk about her Bible, the lady to talk about the Koran to her for an hour. And so they exchanged ideas. And I texted her back, or I emailed her back and told her, I said, you better be careful that she's not converting you, because it sounds to me like she's trying to make you a disciple, not you making her one. Don't give room to the enemy because you're scared to be the light God called you to be. But be the light where you are. The text is beautiful. Romans 5, 7 says, For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. I tell you, this messed me up. This is weird verbiage to me. This is what G G Paul was saying this. What does it mean? Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the good. Because good ain't good enough. 
If all of us were righteous, which the Bible says, no, not one is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come here anyway. Jesus wouldn't need to have saved you. Jesus wouldn't have needed to use your influence to bring other people to him. But we're supposed to be ambassadors for the sake of the good, not for the sake of the righteous, but in order to persuade the good, to be the appropriate ambassador God's called us to be, then we have to be willing to sit amongst sinners. So that's my challenge to you today. Twofold, really. If you've committed your life, if you accepted the follow me and climbed out of your tax booth or out of your tree, then follow with all that you are and set down all this condemnation that you're walking in. Jesus did not die for you to walk in that craziness. The, the Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Not Jesus. So that's my first challenge. Walk in who you are. My second challenge is walk in a way that other people want to be who you are. And be an influence to them.